Wild Honey Collective podcast is a storied listening space where we pollinate ideas about how we can alchemize wild sources of wealth into health by learning from the wisdom of ecosystems. In particular, we look to the wild honeybees who do the work of pollination not only to nurture the next generation to life, but to nurture all life by bringing to fruition the food we eat. The bees thrive in highly organized, female-led social structures where every individual role serves the queen who supports the life of the collective. Teresa Kubasak is a weaver of hearts, stories, and possibilities. Her life's work as a teacher, lover of music, and peace builder has taken her from her native California to Chicago, New York, Iraq, Syria, and at last this pocket of the Shenandoah Valley we call Harrisonburg, Virginia. We acknowledge the Monacan and Monahoic indigenous peoples who have tended this home place from the Roanoke to Potomac River valleys along the Blue Ridge and Allegheny Mountains for 10,000 years and continue to from their ancestral homeland at Bear Mountain. Teresa and I met at a book club hosted by a permaculture education and hospitality center called Vine and Fig in 2018, and we've continued to read books together, centering around stories of colonization and its ripple effects on people, power, and place. She and her partner, Gabe, moved to Damascus, Syria, in 2005, and in 2007 founded the Iraqi Student Project as an active form of reparation for the debilitating aftermath of U.S. war on Iraqi people, and specifically, Iraq's education system. Together, they helped over 70 Iraqi refugees prepare for and attain scholarships to North American universities. Teresa's work with reparation continues today through the Harrisonburg Reparation Group, which seeks to engage the beneficiaries of racial privilege in making financial and in-kind reparations to African-American-led community organizations and campaigns. She will enchant you. Teresa, good morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Amelia. I just have gratitude that we could spend time together. In your home, through this long pandemic, I think it's really special to be sitting around your kitchen table with you. And part of the reason for that is because everything in your home everything that you wear, all of the notes that you've taken on this page of questions in purple pen is so emblematic of who you are. Everything that you wear and everything that you surround yourself with just sings out. I am Teresa. I am a textured, colorful woman of culture. And so I'd love if we could start by talking about how you think, or I, I want to start by talking about your core values and how you express them in your everyday lived experience. Thank you for asking that question. And I think 
there's a quote from E.B. White who wrote Charlotte's Web. And E.B. White said, I wake up every morning and I don't know whether to save the world or savor it. That really fits for me because a lot of my values are savoring texture and color, the simplicity of how to dress in fabrics that I can embellish with embroidery or I can add pockets or I can cut off the collar and change the lapels to something that I want or I could put buttons on that lead nowhere but are just colorful buttons. And even in Damascus, <laughs> I would be walking along the street, but if I saw buttons, maybe that had fallen by a dumpster, maybe a tailor had dropped off a load of something, I would stop and collect buttons. And on my desk today in Harrisonburg, I have a salt shaker in which I store small buttons, many <laughs> that are from Damascus. So the clothing and color and savoring falls into one of my values, which is simplicity, which people think might be counter to seeking beauty and having artwork. But I think if we look at cultures, let's look in Mexico, the beauty of murals and the work of muralistas who put up murals that were colorful but brought the stories of the struggle for independence or the work of Diego Rivera and what he did in even putting Lenin in murals that were in Detroit. How do we look at beauty and the role of beauty in our own life? And so I think in our home setting, the things we hang on the walls, in our case, are from Syria, Iraq, Palestine, Afghanistan. And I think that evokes for me my role of being in solidarity with people around the world. So the value of simplicity doesn't just mean we wear a gray tunic and labor in a uncolorful world, but that we bring in these gifts like chakra colors, rainbow colors, the colors of earth, the abundance of creation and earth, the yellow dye from dried marigolds, the brownish gold and amber dye from walnut shells. These are the colors from nature that can inform our clothing and say who we are. No need to buy clothing when you can get clothing that was used by other persons. You don't have to go online and have Amazon throw a package on your porch of something you might want to wear when you could find something secondhand and either wear it happily or change it to, to how you want it to be. And a lot of these values come from growing up in a family of seven children where my mom and dad had experiences with their families who had lived through the depression. So they had behaviors such as not throwing anything away or using a thing so many times, or cutting the buttons off a shirt and then using the shirt for a rag, but having saved the buttons, or before passing hand-me-downs, changing it to fit the next child who might want purple embellishment on her pocket, like me. And, <laughs> and my grandmother lived with us sometimes, and she was born in Slovakia and came here as a teenager. So I learned her ways of 
cooking simple food, what do you do with a cabbage and a potato? How can you make an onion turn into a very glorious meal with, again, perhaps a, a potato or cabbage? And I feel through my veins the blood of my ancestor women. And so I think in addition to simplicity, another value I have is reaching back to ancestors and reaching forward to the young. And it comes from a physical movement we did with Ostreed when we were in Richmond with mostly Mennonites forming a choir called Singing for Our Lives. And we were there to draw attention to the Mountain Valley Pipeline, hoping that we could stop it by invoking the power of the governor to do so in declaring a climate emergency. But to prepare us the night before, Astrid, who's an organizer from Oakland, had us all in a circle and we motioned sideways with one arm facing back, representing reaching to our ancestors and the other arm reaching into this circle, representing young people and youth. And for me, it evokes young people who accompany me now in my life that I'm 70 because I live in a building with young people. I live in a town with Eastern Mennonite University and James Madison University and young people who have done the Appalachian Trail and chose to stay here in the valley. So I feel that motion of reaching back to my past and not only my birth ancestors of Anna Batska, my great grandma who I never met, but really feel her presence with me and a fabric that we shared today, Amelia, was made by Anna Botka, my great-grandpa, great-grandma, and her daughter, my grandma Kristen. But um, choosing mentors. So I have a mentor, Alice Parker, and she's a composer, a writer of music, and she's had influence in Singer's Glen here in the Valley mm -hmm. and even created an opera about music in Singer's Glen. And... Alice Parker is in her mid-90s and is such a person of wisdom. And I can turn to her as an as a ancestor that will propel me into who I need to be now and what is my identity now. And I watch Alice. She continues to write and compose and use her music for justice and peace and weaving together community. And... Looking forward, I have young people in my life, like you and Nitty and Marisa, who Marisa is part of this movement called Las Tramadas, where she has even younger people, teenage youth, making little booklets or chap books about confronting emotions and how do we deal with that. And there, again, is an example of beauty. They're made by hand. They're either stitched or stapled, but they have watercolors done by hand by the people who created it. And that sense of beauty and holding a small book brings me to a third value I have, which is the value of words. So to me, the value of words comes in th three or four ways. I think the first is reading and I had a poster in my classroom when I was a teacher in New York and Chicago, and I brought the poster with me to Damascus when I worked with Syrian um, in Syria with Iraqi refugees. And the poster says, 10 ways to become a better reader. 
read, 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 read. And so now I continue reading and the book group I'm in is choosing to read nonfiction that is about racism or the intersectionality of racism, capitalism, militarism. How are we going to achieve what we need to if we're not informed? So the the words that I read are very important. And even at night, um, Gabe and I will read out loud to each other. And the book that mm. we're reading out loud now is 400 Souls. Mm. And um, it's by uh, Blaine and Kendi. And we're learning in those short little three to four page stories. So even before going to sleep, we have words going in our minds. And I look at the words too of writing. So I've always been a writer. I've always been a journal keeper and a collector of words and phrases. And I use paper and a paper journal and I could jot words that I hear from persons or from books or radio. And I was a teacher of writer's workshop when I was in Syria. So in Damascus, the writer's workshop on Fridays was one of my most glorious, happy times. And even in the book that we wrote about Syria, there's a chapter on writer's workshop. So the importance of words. And, you know, it's not an accident that Gabe, the person that I'm choosing to spend the last 25 years of my life and and just wonderful companionship in our relationship as a married couple but he's a writer and he was a publisher and a lot of our relationship was built on words because we lived in different places for for many years and the letters that we wrote to one another were such a vital anchor into our relationship of companionship and friendship and a deepening love and compassion that has formed us as a couple and enables us to be a courageous couple to act for justice and peace today. And the other way of words besides reading and writing is lyrics of songs. Because I think if you're an activist and a person working for peace and justice, you must find a way to nurture yourself being in community is one way but music and song and lyrics is another way to nurture myself and for me it's going to sound funny but wmra and tina have a show on saturday called acoustic cafe Mm. she's able to find songs for example che appalachia it's a group that has immigrants who came to the valley and musicians from the valley and the lyrics they put in their songs deal with justice and saturday she played a song by tim o'brien and when i saw him at the red wing festival over the summer he talked about his experience going to the border of mexico and the u.s and observing a court case where 70 migrants were brought in and and how in no time at all they were deported and how they were treated and he has songs about that and the song that tina played saturday the words were when you pray use your feet get off your chair and walk in the street and i think yeah that's such a great thing so so i'm grateful for lyrics to songs and the role of songs in 
the times that Gabe and I were arrested, once protesting the Iraq war, when we were trespassing on federal property in Chicago, and the other time in Fast Lane, Scotland, when we were with a peace movement trying to close down a nuclear submarine base. And the role of song as you're doing an action, the role of song when they load you in a police vehicle to take you to prison, mm-hmm. or in Chicago singing while I was in my cell by myself when I was being hassled by prison officials who were standing at the bars of my cell mm. saying saying things to me that were not appropriate. I was able to use voice and song. So I'm really grateful to Tina and the songs that she cho- chooses. And in my planner, I have a pink post-it. And from 12 <laughs> noon to 3 o'clock every Saturday, I, I only schedule listening to music. But during that time, I'm in my kitchen. I make soup stock. I make yogurt. Mm. I'll bake something. That's my time to do food prep and just listen to music. And that nurtures my soul. So far, I've mentioned simplicity and love of words and uh, reaching back to ancestors and living into the future. But I think another value is community. So if we're going to do what E.B. White says and savor the world and save the world to me you need to do it in community and when i was growing up in my family of seven i had a father who said to all of us if you have gifts you have to use those gifts if you're smart you have to work hard in school if you're brave and daring you have to speak out for what you believe and that's the dharma that i grew up with with my parents And when I was in eighth grade, the priest from our parish called and said, we're starting a new group and it's called People for Others. And we wanna talk to you about being a member. And I said, do you want me to go get my dad? And the priest said, no, I'm talking to you. I said, I'm 13. He said, I'm talking to you. And you Mm -hmm. can bring your sister if you want. That was a transformative moment being an eighth grader and sitting in a room with folks, it felt a lot like the faith in action group that I was with last night who met out at the fairgrounds. It was a faith-based group saying, what do we need in our community? And how are we gonna do it? And how are you gonna act to make it happen? Mm -hmm. That was a very big influence on me to be in community, jumping out of my family community of seven kids, parents and grandparents jumping into a faith-based community who's holding me accountable to come up with solutions and to act on it. And the next community that was life-changing for me was going to my high school, which was a Catholic all-girl high school from the Sisters of Providence. And they were the people you might think of as radical nuns or the nuns on the bus. And they had, for example, the Black Panthers came and did an assembly at our school. Or the sisters took a group of us to Delano to listen to Cesar Chavez and talk about the grape strike. So that was the type of community my high school was. And I think that the later work I did, for example, breaking the sanctions and traveling to Iraq four times, it was within the context of a community called Voices in the Wilderness. So we were never alone. We acted in a community and Now I see that I have to create community wherever I am. So when I moved 
from Syria back to New York, but then came to Harrisonburg, I thought, how can I build community within my apartment building? There's eight apartments. Most of the people are students. What's my role in forming community? And I think that the abundance of gifts that people bring to Harrisonburg as students or workers amplifies our power as a community and maybe that will help us be able to change things in Harrisonburg like why we incarcerate people why would we want to expand the Middle River Jail why would we have a sheriff who cooperates with ICE how can we be present to people that are having a mental health issue instead of calling police how can we be in solidarity with farm workers and poultry workers here that we're struggling to form a union. There's so many ways that we can be community in Harrisonburg. And a fun way for me was a group called Cabin Fever University. <laughs> and that was a wonderful way to watch Croatian films, do a writer's workshop. Um, we sponsored a night in Syria and made Syrian food and talked about Syria. And again, it's community. It's not each person wondering their own destiny, but we're linking arms with others. And that community of cabin fever brought more friends and strength. And so when we were able to have a group look at reparations to the African American community, it really rose out of people in cabin fever. Yeah. And that reparations group has grown into aspects of doing volunteerism, such as digitalizing the library at Shenandoah Valley Black Heritage Center, the activism of going to African-American cemeteries that have been abused and doing physical work to clear away the brambles and trees and discover the gravestones and record who's buried there. And other volunteerism of looking at our own town and walking and walking tour to see what was destroyed during so-called urban renewal in the 60s in our town, what buildings were destroyed, barbershops, African-American churches, a braiding salon, Miss Jenny's Tea House, homes, and to be in solidarity with people from Shenandoah Valley Black Heritage Center gives me a community as well. So I feel that I'm always acting and working for justice and peace, but not as my own self. It could be within a, a family, an organization, the unit of Gabe and I as a couple. Um, in fact, when we first moved here, we were here 24 hours and somebody knocked on the door and I opened the door and the person said, are you Gabe and Teresa? <laughs> and I thought, huh, but it felt like, yes, that is a unit that I'm really part of. And I said, yes. And he said, I have a CSA. Here's a wooden box of food. It was sent by the people who helped you move on Sunday night. And that was my introduction into a community of Harrisonburg that I believe does really work on community building and that value to me is going to carry me through the next two or three decades of my life. And I'm just really grateful for all the people that are in these circles that seem to overlap and 
ripple out and circle back in spirals because community is really so nourishing. Everything that you said is so encapsulating of not believing what we've been taught in our culture that is we are individual units individual units are weak they don't have anything to hang on to they don't even have the earth they don't have roots and it very much feels to me like that is the way that culturally many of us have been taught to move through the world if we're lucky we have influences who tell us there's another way and you've just spoken about all of these ways that it doesn't have to be a grand gesture of scrapping everything and moving out to some faraway place that has nothing to do with what you've been involved in before you're talking about putting out tendrils like a strawberry you have these tendrils that they shoot out, they find a place of open ground and they take root. Then they make a sweet fruit. Then a child picks that fruit and we all go strawberry picking. We all make shortcake. It's all this way of being that I want us to explore together through this listening space because I think we are so programmed by our culture to think that we have to follow a prescription we that prescription is not for health it's actually for sickness stress is making us sick loneliness is making us sick emptiness in our ways of just being consumers and not full people that are connected to our ecosystems and our ecological family is making us sick and also being complicit with systems of violence and actual killing that is happening is also killing part of ourselves so thank you for articulating your core values simplicity the power of words the power of ancestral lineage future generations and community that speak so much to all of those things. Thank you, Amelia. So, in whatever way is authentic to our gifts, like your father said, we want to find a way to express who we are, where we've come from, and where we're going in a way that is countercultural. If the dominant culture is all of the things that we were just saying about making us weak links that are passively consuming and uncritically consuming, that's a big part of our dominant culture. And so if we're cultural workers who are engaged in countercultural articulation of how we want to live, then I wonder how you see your own work as fitting in to challenging what have we been taught? What do we think is a way of life? And what could be an alternative if that's not the way? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not the way, is it? 
And I think of two books that were influential for me. One was called Teaching as a Subversive Activity. And I think that my life as a teacher exemplified that. And I think in making choices of how to walk the path with children and youth and later college-age people, that path of education was so important. What do we learn about and why? Are we learning the truth? For example, this 1619 curriculum that is been created in some states or in some political parties it's trying to be canceled that we may not teach the truth of what happened in our culture or in our history with slavery with slavery or if you're in California as I was as a child never learning the names of the indigenous people who lived in Los Angeles where I was living and still do. Yes. And so I think the countercultural value in education is let's talk about the truth. And children can know the truth, definitely. And an example of that is when Gabe and I came back from Iraq in 1999, we were showing slides at a community event to talk about the U.S. role and how the sanctions were damaging the most vulnerable in Iraq, the elderly, the children, the ill. And one family brought their children. And I remember thinking, gosh, I hope these slides are appropriate because here's this little girl who's six years old. But halfway through the slides about Iraq and our experience being there, the six-year-old girl yelled out, that's not fair. That's not fair. And I think this child had the wisdom. So we can tell truth. And this child was able to tell adults in the room. And could that child talk to Congress? Could that child change the budget of the defense of our country? Could that child go to the UN? So I think the counterculture value of truth and bringing that into education is really important. And then to fast forward now, one of the communities I've been involved in since 1978 is the Loretto community that began in 1812 in Kentucky as a group of Catholic women, but now it's branched out into men and women of different faith backgrounds. But just last year, we developed a working group on anti-capitalism to really name what we're seeing, what's the role of capitalism in militarism? What's the role of capitalism in the slavery that our country maintained? What's the role of capitalism now in demeaning self-concepts of teenage girls who are into Facebook or into consumerism and thinking that we need to wear certain clothing, listen to certain music? So that very intentional view of looking at capitalism is so countercultural. And in fact, other members of the community said, anti-capitalism is not a good name for your working group. It sounds so negative. And we came up with the name Cooperative Economics. But down in its heart, it really is anti-capitalism, isn't it? 
And the countercultural movement at that small committee, less than 10 people, has been able to collaborate with a huger movement that began as Economics of Happiness, and it's a worldwide movement. Mm. Now it's renamed Local Futures. But that group is looking at how do we live counterculturally? How do we how do we not fall into the whole globalization world of Walmart and Coca-Cola and big banking and unregulated business? How do we keep it local? And I think we can look at the huge policy changes that need to be made in our country. And so that group of cooperative economics is trying to work on that issue. How do we look at the money we spend? How do we transport ourselves to places? What's the role of fossil fuels? There's so much countercultural in just thinking, how would we get to DC to go to a protest? Do we take the bus that's coming from our local college? Do we not attend and do it on Zoom? There's all these issues of, of countercultural folks trying to still be activists, but denying the culture's power over us. Mm-hmm. And for me, part of the strength is knowing young people like you, Amelia, and others that are also trying to live counterculture and to think that we don't need to own a car or have a television or take forms of entertainment that are coming from the outside world when our entertainment can be singing together, dancing together, being with folks that are playing instruments while we jump up and dance and reading books and sitting on the porch and having tea with people stitching with people on the front porch, these countercultural movements of simplicity. And I think another counterculture way of looking at reparations, what do we owe African-Americans knowing that, for example, knowing that graduates of Princeton in the 1800s used what they knew about law to use that in the South to displace the Cherokee, the Crow, the Cree, the Chickasaw, and take that indigenous land and then convert it to cotton fields and bring more slaves in. You know, how do we look at that truth and say, wow, how are we still using capitalism to damage people of other races? Yeah. There's so much counterculture in those ways of looking that when families gather for Thanksgiving or other family holidays, there's some at the table, like me and Gabe, who might espouse beliefs such as that, that really conflicts with the culture of the United States. And I think we have to be willing to be counterculture. And to me, it's a joy to find others and be nurtured by them. And I think of words of Mary Lou Tobin, who was one of the presidents of Loretto community. And she said, you need to be aware. You need to be awake. You need to be alert and then you need to act. So we know too much now to fall into the dominant culture. We have to keep our identity as counterculturalists 
And one thing I don't like, if people see me, sometimes they'll say, oh, you're just an old hippie. And I think, well, what does just mean? What does old mean? And what does hippie mean? Can we look at values that arose in the 60s? Can we look at movements for civil rights, women's rights, people at the People's Park in Berkeley in the 60s, looking at Angela Davis, looking at all these movements. These are wonderful values. And I don't think we could put people down by stereotyping based on what they may look like or wear. And I feel that I'm very comfortable with who I am in this identity and one of my roles in being in community in my building with younger people or in my town with younger people is to say, we're moving forward. We're doing it. You know who you are and I'm going to help you be who you are. And I'm just really proud and happy to be part of not a stagnant movement, but a flowing river and an ocean of waves because that's who we are. Mm-hmm. I have a honey story, but it doesn't answer any of these questions. Oh, I think it does. <laughs> so <laughs> when Gabe and I were in the seventh year of living in Syria, in Damascus, people said there's going to be a special outdoor market. That is people who are on the way to the Hajj. They're on their way to Mecca coming from Europe. And you should come because there's these people from Dagestan that are going to be selling amazing things. So Gabe and I found in this area of Damascus an empty parking lot between two gray buildings. And it was a whole open market, a whole souk. And sure enough, here were people from Dagestan. And they had cars, caravans, vans, trucks, all kinds of vehicles. And they had set up an informal farmer's market and they were selling knit slippers and footwear. They were selling leather goods for either footwear or bags, backpacks, all kinds of purses and ways to carry items. They were selling embroidered clothing. They were selling blankets and they were selling honey. The honey booth had tall blue vessels that here I've seen used as rainwater barrels. It's that amount of honey that was in this booth. And at the table were a man and a woman from Dagestan. And Gabe and I have a rug in our library from Dagestan that we bought at a flea market in Russia. So I know the beauty of the the royal blues and the deep maroons and the colors. And sure enough, that, that was the colors that the woman and man from Dagestan had on their elaborate clothing. And on the table were giant mason jars. And when we came up to their booth, the choice was, do you want the dark honey or the light honey? And they had a huge ladle that must have held three cups just in that huge ladle. And we asked for a sample 
and we tasted each honey and we said we'd like the dark honey. And when they dipped the ladle into that huge rain barrel and picked up the honey, it was held together in the slowest funnel of dripping you ever saw. And they moved it to this huge wide mouth jar and filled it. It just took two ladle full for this <laughs> jar. And it was the most wonderful honey ever. And I'm so glad for that experience. And in 2012, in the summer, on July 31st, actually, is when we left Syria. And it was a place that we had loved and we loved the people and the culture and the words and the music. And we didn't come back to the US immediately. We needed time. So we went actually to Turkey for a month. But when we came back to the US, we returned to New York where I had been teaching before our Syria journey. And we went to farmer's market at Union Square in New York City. And we were walking along all the booths and there was a honey booth. And we went up and I looked at the man and woman and I just was frozen. And she said, would you like to try our honey? And I said, yes, I'd like to try the dark honey. And she had some kind of a vessel, not like a huge rain barrel, but when she dipped her spoon into the honey I just burst out crying and I was just weeping and sobbing. And she said, are you okay? What did I do? Are you okay? And I said, this just reminds me of being back in Syria mm. and thinking of the people of Syria and what they were going through, because although we say civil unquote war, it was really outsiders who came in and escalated it and made it worse in so many ways including our own country and thinking of Syria and the music and the people and that day when the Dajestani couple was giving us this huge ladle of honey. It just brought all of that back. Yeah. And it was a moment of grieving and loss for Syria. And I couldn't articulate it to this poor woman who was from upstate New York trying to give us honey. And... um so when I see honey now, if it's dripping from a spoon, if it's dripping from a jar, if it's dripping from those cute little honey twirlers that have grooves in them, it always brings me back to Syria. Mm. There are so few substances like it. Yes, and look how bees live in community. Ants live in community. We need to live in community. Mm -hmm. hmm. And I, you know, I think an experience of grief that is that deep can only come from love. And we experience grief as opposed to sadness or longing when we really deeply experience love and for me, hearing this metaphor of the honey is really powerful because I'm really drawn to honey. 
seeing that it is this natural alchemical process that it alchemizes the essence of flowers into this liquid gold that is almost like an ambrosia. It's so precious and it's so medicinal and so absolutely beautiful and mesmerizing how it moves, how it tastes, how it's made, everything about it. And the creatures who make it and the cooperation that it comes from is just, to me, the most clear example that we have as humans living on the earth, that the potential for transformation of all things is always possible. And that's the attitude that I'm always trying to put forward through these conversations that are difficult. But I also think that your story, it points to the alchemy of grief in us and the transformation that it can bring about in us. And that our grief, our struggles, our losses, the things that we have to separate from and the things that are taken away from us are the places from which parts of ourselves start to germinate and grow and eventually bloom if they're given the, the proper conditions to grow and thrive. And grief is a kind of alchemy of our bodies and when we can become crafters of that alchemical process, we can make medicine. Martin Luther King brought up militarism in his April speech at Riverside Church. And people even cautioned him, no, Martin, just focus on racial issues. And he said, no, I have to bring up Vietnam. I have to bring up militarism. And I think that Angela Davis, Kianga Yamata-Taylor, other leaders have brought up the role of militarism in negating how we are really called to live to be in solidarity with other humans. So if our country is spending billions on militarism, we don't have funds to bring to education, health, welfare, what we really need. And also there's a false belief that militarism is for protection. Protection from what? From who? Or that we need to escalate and have more weapons. Or we need to have more nuclear submarines. Or we need to have more missiles pointed somewhere. And another thing about militarism that really hurts me is looking at teenagers that are preyed upon by military recruiters who are told 
you can be more of yourself by joining the armed services and in exchange you'll have a job you'll have money you'll have security you can use the gi bill you'll get a loan and i think that the militarism is ruining lives of people that are really asked to kill so if we're not supposed to kill one another in so many faith-based belief systems from so many continents, we're recruiting people to say, we're gonna ask you to kill when it comes right down to it. It may be pushing a button that is a drone that will kill. It may be using a computer that will have ways to kill. It may be actual weapons or vehicles that you're being asked to operate. But the bottom line is how militarism is related to racism, racism, capitalism. All of these defects of our society go back to militarism. And when we look at some countries that do not have almost 800 military bases around the world, like the U.S. does, we look at how do they spend their money. They spend it in... A prison system, for example, in Norway that has libraries, animals, farming, ways to really say to prisoners, how do you want to rehabilitate yourself? What do you need that we can help you come back to society? Or if we didn't have this militarism, we would be able to say all children have safe water to drink in their city or all children can receive a quality education. If we look at the work of Jonathan Kozel, an influence on me, and the books he wrote about savage inequalities in education, he pointed out how a school in lower Manhattan that has rich kids will have a school library, a computer lab, a band teacher, an art teacher. And then if you go up to the other part of New York Island where people are poor, those schools not only lack the same services, but they may have lead paint on the walls. They may have water pipes that make it impossible for children to drink at the drinking fountain. They may have playgrounds without adequate things to play on. And that discrepancy between rich and poor in education could be solved if the United States didn't use all their money for militarism. Mm -hmm. And I think, I remember having a fight with my father once because when my son was born, a question came up of would he ever serve in the military or be in Vietnam or any of that kind of thing. Um, although by then Vietnam was over and I remember saying I would not be proud if my son joined the military. I, I would rather that he just be an ordinary worker in our society and, um, and I think back to my mother's life in Chicago, how 
in the 40s, families put up a star if their child was in the army during World War II. Um, and to see four stars of sons in a window for some was a source of pride. And I think, was it? Is that the best way we can solve differences by sending people to war? And we've created ways for peace like the UN, but it's not empowered by militaristic giants like the US. And the US is huge huge presence on the Security Council or the US threatening other countries will cut off money that we give you for food and welfare if you don't vote the way we want. Um, so I think that even an apparatus like the UN that's supposed to help us not have war is being handcuffed by the US at its great military power. And for me, in Harrisonburg, when I see fighter jets that appear to be in the sky from some Air Force base in Virginia, it makes me angry and I will go out to my back porch and sometimes yell at the sky and I say, get out of our sky, get out of our sky because that's not our future. We're called to love one another and understand each other and live in community and live in community with the world. And I think as Americans, we're so arrogant thinking that we can use our weaponry to bring peace to others. But we can see that it failed in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Yemen, all these other places. And when we go back to signs that people held in the 60s about peace, those are still the true signs that we need to hold. And one sign that we have on our porch is a quote from John Lewis that says the vote is one of the most powerful nonviolent tools that we have. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to be politically involved enough to be able to vote the way that we think will bring peace and not escalation of military solutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that our my generation is the inheritor of a lot of mounting tensions between polarizing perspectives on how we want to be in relationship to the world, whether it's our imperialism and endless war in the global context or our relationship to the climate itself and our ability as a species and like living planet to go on. Um, and there's always going to be differences in every generation because people are complex. But I can speak for myself when I say that what I really feel is missing in our culture is a sense of personal responsibility to understand how 
the actions of our government, which at the end of the day, no matter how much corruption takes place, is supposed to operate by our own consent and can be whipped back into shape with enough force. Mm. I'm not really speaking about nonviolence right now. (laughs) Um, But I'm not advocating for violence either. I'm just saying that it takes force. And nonviolence and force are different things. But to be forceful in our insistence that we operate in a different way as an empire and that we humble ourselves and kneel back down to like the scale of our places and the people who live here and the life that we depend on and are interrelated to in order to have lives that can offer us something more than this way of being part of an inherently extractive and violent structural culture and system of dominance. So I wanted to ask you that, and I'm glad that you talked about the water that children have to drink and the ways that we have to show up for each other on an interpersonal level. Because yeah, some people are going to be really adamant about patriotism as a posture of how they express themselves as like their national identity and their pride and that's not a bad thing but I think it's misplaced because there's so much killing that is put in the name of that but I think that a lot of us are just somewhere in between where we're not really thinking about how the way that we meet our own needs and the opportunities that we've received are all tied in to the violence that's being carried out in Guantanamo Bay, Palestine, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, indigenous land, black communities, the border with Central America. I don't hate to leave people out of mm-hmm. like the struggles that I've just named, but there are too many because it's it's just such a serpentine like monster but I want us to just think about it so I you know we've created a little space for that today we have and it's amazing to be a grandmother for me and to watch how my daughter makes choices to raise her son and hear how they will kayak across the bay to farmer's market, hear how they attend local outside music events to dance with the community, how they live in a town with very little light pollution and how the role of the farmer's market is so important for them. Not only as a place to buy sustainable food and support local farmers, but a place to gather as community 
and develop solidarity with one another, knowing that the collaboration of these humans is going to propel us forward. Yeah. It all comes down to like our daily choices and how we choose to show up in relationship. But seeing our relationship on a multi-scalar level. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Teresa. Thank been, you, Amelia. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation as part of our recorded history now. And I invite people that are listening, choose an elder or a younger that you want to dialogue with. And before the week is out, meet with them, have some tea, and listen to one another. Yeah, it really helps. Thank you all so much for listening. If you appreciate this work, the simplest and easiest way to support it is by hitting that follow button on whatever platform you're listening, sharing it with your friends, and following us over on Instagram at wildhoney.collective. I love, love, love when you all give me your feedback, so message me on Instagram with your reflections and questions, or fill out the question form at wildhoneycollective.org. New episodes will come out every other week for all of season one through the end of January. But if you want to hear more, you can get your friends to follow wildhoney.collective on Instagram. And for every 100 new followers that I get, I'll post a bonus episode to celebrate. Last but not least, you can support the podcast on Patreon by becoming a monthly subscriber, which comes with added benefits, including merch rock the culture out in the world help us pollinate ideas for greater collective health and for all of you wild honeys out there keep creating